Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Tragic Heart of British Politics by Bell Tyndall. 112263 is Stephen King's masterful alternative history novel, crafting a world where JFK had not been assassinated. The Man in the High Castle is Philip K. Dick's offering, painting the literary picture of a world where the so called Axis states won World War II. And then there's Kim Stanley Robinson, who imagines what the past five centuries may have looked like had 99% of the European population been wiped out by the Black Death, as opposed to the far more factual 35% in the years of rice and salt. These books reimagine the past, the present and the future through the lens of two expansive words. What if... While reading Rory Stewart's Politics on the Edge, I found myself constructing an alternative present, one where Rory Stewart is our Prime Minister. Now, I'm not comparing the 2019 Conservative Leadership Contest to the Black Death, although it's a little tempting, nor am I comparing myself to Stephen King. It's just that those two words, what if, have been harassing me. What if Rory Stewart had won that contest. Where would our relationship with the EU currently stand? How might the heights of the pandemic have been handled? How might our country have recovered from it differently? What about the refugee crisis, the economy, the war in Ukraine, the war in Artsakh, the climate crisis? How would these things be different, for better or for worse, if Rory Stewart wasn't currently the politically exiled co-host of the ridiculously successful The Rest is Politics podcast, but was instead our head of government. I don't hold the answers, just a large heap of curiosity. It's a foolish kind of curiosity, though, because Rory Stewart was never going to be our prime minister. And he's generously offered us a 417 page long explanation as to why. At the age of just 37, Rory could already call himself an Oxford graduate, a soldier, an author, a long-distance walker. Admittedly, this title doesn't sound as interesting as the others, but I assure you it is. A governor of a province in Iraq and a Harvard professor. Surely these achievements meant that he already had material enough for six pretty interesting memoirs. But Rory had his sights set on the British political arena which I suppose is a natural aspiration for a man who recalls that the only thing that had ever really motivated me since I was a small child was the idea of public service. With the benefit of a decade worth of hindsight, such a line makes you want to scream, don't do it, Rory, into the page. You can't help but preemptively wince at the inevitability of this man's naive heart shattering, can you? After all, These words sit forebodingly in chapter two. But scream at the book all you want. A bright-eyed Rory Stewart walked into Parliament in 2010. 
And that's where this tale of an eccentric, well-meaning, albeit overly romantic, boyish man, his words not mine, becomes an excoriating picture of a shamefully dysfunctional political culture. Rowan Williams's words, not mine. The book is magnificent. There's no two ways about it. Annoyingly, Rory Stewart can add natural wordsmith to his impressive assemblage of titles. He doesn't simply recall his experiences, he recrafts them. This means, for example, that instead of his first encounter with David Cameron reading like a download of the meeting's minutes, readers are treated to knowing that Cameron was late, that his smile was notably easy, his hair notably fine, and his understanding of the situation in Afghanistan notably limited. We also get to smugly enjoy that he began the meeting in Kabul with a naff joke about William Hague that had tumbleweed rolling across the international boardroom. We relish this while pretending, of course, that we haven't had those excruciating moments ourselves, which we all have, just with the luxury of not having Rory Stewart in the room. Rory's writing abilities invite readers into those rooms and those moments, all of which are usually out of bounds. Which brings me on to the second reason why this memoir is an utterly gripping read. It holds almost nothing back. Rory places his former bosses, who just happen to be our former prime ministers, former colleagues and friends, many of which I worry will also be in the former category, once they read of their appearances in this memoir, on the altar. He sacrifices any confidence that they may have once held in him in the name of necessary exposure. He preempts their rage, simply responding that our government and parliament, which once had a reasonable claim to be the best in the world, is now in a shameful state. And generally, given the choice between discretion and honesty, I have chosen the latter. His most brutal exposures, although I don't doubt that many will argue that exposure is an unfair word to use here, seen as we only have one verified account of things that happened, are that of David Cameron, Liz Truss and, of course, Boris Johnson. Theresa May actually comes off rather well in comparison. David Cameron comes across as a factory-made career politician, with learnt confidence and charm, rigidly rehearsed opinions, and an ensemble of old Etonians with floppy hair and open-necked white shirts at his side. Rory's depiction of Liz Truss, on the other hand, can be adequately summed up in his recounting of one particular instance. After telling her that his father had just died, Truss paused for a moment, nodded, and asked when the next 25-year environment plan would be ready. And then, of course, there's Rory's ultimate arch-nemesis, Boris Johnson, who appears to be the epitome of everything that Rory Stewart believes to be toxic and shameful about the current state of British politics. He is ever the punchline, the man who, upon hearing the outcome of the Brexit referendum, advised Rory that he mustn't believe a word I'm about to say, before ambiguously offering slash unoffering him a position in his cabinet. A cabinet which did not yet exist, of course. And that's not to mention his opinions on Michael Gove, who somehow comes off even worse than Boris. 
The characterizations in this memoir are blistering, to put it mildly. All heroes need a villain, after all, and Rory considers these villains to be senior enough to bear responsibility. Reading this book and enjoying it is a disconcerting experience. One cannot help but lap up the drama while simultaneously despairing over it. It is a great read, but I don't want it to be. I don't want a book this scandalous, with characters this toxic and storylines this riveting, to be about the place and people who govern my country and therefore me. Of course, the book is not wholly damning. Rory assures us that there were are people within the system that genuinely do do their best for the sake of public service. But they're fighting against the tide. On the whole, it's a bleak or be enthralling picture that Rory paints. So, back to those alternative history ponderings. How would, how could Rory have changed things from the top of the pyramid. The king of the middle ground, the voice of reason, the hope of the centrist. What would it look like for him to have had his way? Frustratingly, it doesn't matter much, because, as I say, this man was never going to be the UK's prime minister. Not wholly because of any one individual or any one leadership campaign, But because if, and we must bear in mind that it's a big if, Rory's perception of high office in Parliament is accurate, there's no place for someone like him. Authentic humanity, in all its varying forms, is unexpected, unappreciated, and certainly unwelcome in those spaces. According to this book, genuine virtue, humble introspection, and noble altruism are no longer workable attributes. Public service, for public service's sake, will not get you the top job. And that is the true tragedy at the heart of this memoir, the book that I revelled in, the book that I wish didn't exist. Oh, that future Rory Stewarts would leave a decade of politics with nothing interesting to write about. One can dream, I suppose. Cost of living crisis. Faith and food banks combine to tackle destitution and its causes. By Robert Wright. When Howard Wardle was making plans to set up a food bank in Eastbourne, in East Sussex, he received little support from his fellow church leaders. Speaking in the industrial estate warehouse that has been the food bank's headquarters since 2017, Wardle recalls how at a meeting called to discuss the idea he largely encountered bafflement. At the time, Wardle was pastor of the town's community church. They said, There isn't a need in the town. You're wasting your time doing it, Wardle says of the meeting in 2011. Wardle nevertheless received encouragement from Eastbourne Citizens Advice Bureau and from the major of the local Salvation Army congregation, the local authority's social services, and the Trussell Trust, the UK's largest organiser of food banks. The food bank, of which Wardle is now chief executive, last year handed out 
280,000 meals. Yet, for Wardle and Emma Revy, the Trussell Trust's National Chief Executive, it is a matter of regret that its members are distributing so much food. Organisations associated with the Trussell Trust handed out 2.99 million parcels in the year to March 2023. The figure was a 30% increase on the year before, a rise largely down to the cost of living crisis started by the spikes in energy and food prices following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 22. It's incredibly worrying and upsetting that so many people, more people, are having to come to food banks, Revy says. Workers at the Eastbourne Food Bank and others nationally are following a strategy of campaigning for policies that seek to ensure that no one needs to seek emergency food support. They also employ staff who help clients to navigate the benefit system, prepare for work or take other steps to find a permanent solution to their problems. The Trussell Trust centrally provides organisational support for affiliated food banks but deliberately does not undertake functions such as purchasing food. Revy says it adopted the strategy of trying to put itself out of business five years ago after experiencing significant growth in demand for its services. The Trust was founded in 1997 in Salisbury by Carol and Paddy Henderson, a Christian couple, Christian principles have been core to the Trust's operations ever since. We reached a decision point where we either had to accept that this situation was likely to increase and would always be needed, or we had to decide that that was not acceptable and change the way we thought about our work, Revy says. The Trust recognised how inadequate food parcels were to the fundamental needs that member food banks were seeing among clients, she adds. The reason people are coming to food banks is they don't have enough money to afford the essentials, Revy says. They know it's not going to put credit on the gas meter. They know it's not going to pay for school shoes. The organisation had to decide whether it accepted as inevitable that so many people needed its services or would reorient itself towards working to an end to that need, she adds. We were absolutely resolute that enough is enough, Revy says. We needed to do whatever we needed to do to reduce the number of people needing to come to food banks. In Eastbourne, the strategy of reducing dependence on food banks has been in place from the start, according to Wardle. When we started, we felt it was one thing to have a food bank giving out food, but another to have people not need to come to the food banks, he says. After receiving some grant funding, the food bank took on staff to help clients to resolve their financial problems and ensure that they were receiving all the welfare benefits to which they were entitled. We built a welfare benefits team, a debt team and a medical benefits team so that we could help clients. Wardle says. Robert Crockford, the food bank's senior advocacy officer, says he helps food bank clients to navigate issues such as the two-child limit and the overall benefits cap that restrict the amount of benefits recipients can receive. The two-child limit stops parents from receiving child benefit for any more than two children if the additional children were born after 2017. 
the benefit cap, £283.71 for a single person living outside Greater London, was introduced in 2013. It limits the total amount a person or family can receive from the system. Crockford explains that he seeks to help clients to explore whether they count as disabled, a carer, or have some other status that might enable them to receive higher benefits. The group also works with People Matter, a charity that helps to prepare people for work. We're not just here to get people on benefits, Crockford says. If we think they can work, we try to encourage people to get into work. Revy bemoans the overall inadequacy of the benefit system, pointing out that many recipients of the universal credit, the main income support benefit for most people who are unemployed or on low incomes in the UK, cannot afford food. When almost half the people on that benefit are unable to afford food, something systematically is failing, she says. So do you tackle the symptoms? Or do you tackle the actual problem? That emphasis on tackling problems is clear at another food bank affiliated with the Trust in Kingston, on the southwestern edge of London. Ian Jacobs, director of the Kingston Food Bank, says his organisation works closely with Citizens Advice to try to develop permanent solutions for people seeking help. We do deep dive investigations into people's circumstances to try to see if we can get more money into people's pockets, he says. Kingston Food Bank currently operates six food bank centres and one pantry where referred clients can select and buy reduced price food. Jacobs says he would like one day to reverse the proportion so that it operates six pantries and one food bank. Jacobs, a member of the Doxa Deo Community Church, an independent evangelical church, also makes it clear that many volunteers are working at the food bank out of a Christian conviction. We're always open to pray with clients, he says. Revy says that the trust is deeply rooted in local churches. Many of our volunteers and staff are motivated in the work that they do by their Christian faith, she says. Our values of community, compassion, dignity and justice are deeply rooted in the Christian faith. Revy points out that the Trust was founded by Christians and that its network grew through approaches by individual churches to the Trust. We as an organisation work with people of all faiths and none, and we certainly support people of all faiths and none, she says, but we are deeply rooted in the local churches and many of our volunteers and staff are motivated in the work that they do by their Christian faith, she says. Faith has a very special role to play in the Trust's work, Revy adds. We don't believe there should be food banks in today's society, Jacob says. That's why we do all the extra work, to make sure people aren't dependent on the food bank. Disney, A Hundred Years of Waiting for Prince Charming, by Lauren Wendell. Picture the scene. You're outside, running an errand. Maybe you're taking the bins out or cleaning your car in the street. The sun is blazing and you're in a great mood. Bolstered by the good weather, you start to sing to yourself. 
Maybe you've got Spotify on or the car radio is playing. Just as you're getting your groove on to gaga, someone comes up behind you, about a foot away, and joins in with the song. Startled, you stop singing, swing round to see the other half of your unsolicited duet. The other person also stops and says, Hello, did I frighten you? Clearly concerned, you back away towards your house. The person continues, Wait, wait, please don't run away. As you dash through the front door and slam it behind you, you hear your uninvited singing partner pick up the song where the two of you left off in an attempt to serenade you as you flee. Menacing, right? No one's stopping to swap numbers with the creepy crooner. Except this is the exact interaction between Snow White and Prince Charming in the Disney film of 1937. Word for word. I sat through it to check. Did she call the police? Was she embarrassed and uncomfortable with his invasion of her personal space? Did she drop a message to the other princesses to tell them to watch out for the crackpot future king? None of the above. The next time we hear her speak about the prince, Snow White is talking to the seven dwarves and explaining that she's in love with him. He's the only one for her and there's nobody like him anywhere at all. Those are actual quotes. When the prince and Snow White are finally reunited, she is woken from her unconsciousness by his kiss and he leads her away, wordlessly, into the sunset. In the whole film, Snow White doesn't say a word directly to the prince. They never made Snow White too. Maybe that's because watching the slow and agonising breakdown of a relationship that was entered into prematurely isn't very Disney. I, for one, would pay to watch as Snow White grows to realise that marrying someone who looms up on young women and breaks into song isn't all it's cracked up to be. And as the prince gets fed up with the woodland creatures leaving their droppings as they traipse through the house to help with all the various daily chores. The relationships we saw as children to model our hopes and dreams upon were fundamentally flawed and Disney was at the heart of what I will be calling from here on in the Great Deception. In our treasured childhood films, feelings of love didn't grow from a deep and mutual understanding of who the other was. It was an encounter that sparked love at first sight, followed by some questionable courtship practices. It's a sinister day in the magical kingdom when you realise Belle was a hostage with Stockholm Syndrome. Ariel changed her species and gave up her voice in order to gain favour with the prince and Sleeping Beauty was given a non-consensual kiss while unconscious. We know all these are fairy stories, but the material we surround ourselves with has a tendency to stick, no matter how impervious we believe ourselves to be. Somewhere between Cinderella's pre-midnight waltz and Aladdin and Jasmine's market stall encounter, we fell for the idea that instant attraction is preferable to that which builds and develops more slowly over a longer period of time. The reality is that some of the best, most fulfilling relationships don't kick off with irrepressible feelings of chemistry. In some cases, that chemistry wanes over time, and in others, it develops with greater engagement. 
That said, those of us who are conscious that a pretty face or a banging body aren't all they're cracked up to be when contributing to a lifetime-length relationship, do forget that attraction is still important. The best depiction of a healthy attraction I've heard is Will Vanderhart's on the dating course. He compares a relationship to a church candle, one of those big, fat pillar ones. The attraction is the wick. You need it to get the thing going. But if you're all wick, you'll burn out quickly. The wax is the substance, the friendship, the deeper understanding of each other, the experiences you share. But if you're all wax, you can't get the flame going. However, if you've got both, you've got a candle that will burn brightly and for a long time. Another glug of Kool-Aid that Snow White has guzzled down was this idea of the one. Now, this is key, so listen up. There is no the one, and you do not have a soulmate. Neither of those things exist. Mr or Mrs Wright is not out there. Get on with your life. Back in the ancient days of Athens, Plato shared some questionable insight into the origin of humans. Turns out, way back when, people had four legs, four arms and a head with two faces. Zeus, despite being king of the gods, was afraid of what these eight appendaged double-faced people could do. So he split them down the middle. Humans, now incomplete, walked the earth, pining for their other half, throwing their arms around each other and intertwining their bodies in an attempt to grow together. In summary, the idea of a missing person to complete you is not founded on any scientific or biblical truth. It's misinformation from Plato and Jerry Maguire. It's not a great premise to build your life and expectations on. It's a waste of time. What someone should have told Walt was that there are a number of people Snow White would meet in her life who would be a suitable marriage partner for her. She would have a different but fulfilling life with each. A person would become the one when she chose to commit to them because she would be making a promise to them to eliminate all others from the equation, leaving just one. The entertainment conglomerate has done its best in recent years to repent for the generations of young girls with unrealistic romantic expectations. They've produced a slew of powerful and sassy women out for adventure with no love interest in sight. See Moana and Rhea and the Last Dragon. But for myself and my millennial peers, the stage has already been set. If he doesn't rock up on a valiant steed, quite frankly, we're not interested.